an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thanks very much, John, for your introduction. Um, and I must say it's a pleasure to be here. I've never been at this university before. I'm very happy to have the chance. I've uh, very much enjoyed the goings on and the papers and the comments and the questions. Um, now, John is to be my commentator, and he also, and he wanted two things. He wanted me to sum up everything and make my objections to it all, and also to send him these in advance. You know, but I thought this was a, a little difficult. <laughs> but I will say, uh, with respect to the conference so far, even though I taught 28 years at the University of Notre Dame, I have never heard so much heavy-duty heavy Thomistic philosophy <laughs> in one stretch as, as here. Uh, Thomistic philosophy is, of course, philosophy, and uh, philosophy is a fine subject, but it does have its uh, bad sides. There are some of you probably who are not philosophers. Um, students, not all students major in philosophy, unfortunately. <laughs> but, but um, you can sort of see why, because in philosophy you have to sometimes think about sort of miserable scenarios or states of affairs. So for example, you have to think about uh, being a brain in a vat if, you're do, if you want to do epistemology, this theory of knowledge, you know, how one knows things and so on. So you have to consider the following scenario. You're, you are captured by aliens from some other planet maybe in one of those parallel universes or other universes uh, cosmologists sometimes talk about, they take you to, uh, they take you to their, their laboratories, remove your brain from, its, from the, your skull, put it in a vat of uh, nutrients, keep it artificially alive in this vat of nutrients, attach their uh, leads to it from their, from their um, Apple computer, and then, <laughs> then type in what it is they want you to think and feel. Now, if that were to happen, it would seem just like it does seem to you, right? So how would you know that, you know, that isn't the way it is? How do you know you're not a brain in a vat? Well, that's a kind of a miserable thought. <laughs> um, another miserable thought is uh, that philosophers have to deal with is solipsism. Uh, Professor Weicker talked about a certain, Dr. Weicker talked about a certain way of uh, thinking about science that implied that one couldn't prove the existence of cells or maybe could prove there weren't any cells, I don't know, either way. But solipsism is the idea that you are the only, you're a solipsist if you think you are the only thing that exists and everything else is merely a figment of your imagination. Um, and there have been some solipsists. Bertrand Russell was a solipsist for a while. Of course, for most anything you pick out, Bertrand Russell was that for a while. <laughs> so, and uh, he wrote a book in which he advocated solipsism. Not exactly sure why he wrote the book, but, but, but he did. And uh, in fact, some woman, I believe her name was Lady Ladd Franklin, wrote him a letter and said she thought his case was very, very good. She wondered, why aren't there more of us solipsists? Yeah. <laughs> well, I once, uh, I once met an actual live solipsist in my first job at Wayne State University many years ago. I heard there was a solipsist in the, uh, in the medical school. This solipsist, he was also a university professor, which there and then meant he could 
go to take, teach any course he wanted to in the university. So if he wanted to teach my course in logic, he'd just come over and say, Plantinga, I'm going to teach your course in logic. You'll have to find something else. And I'd have to find something else, like maybe uh, surgery or something like that, <laughs> which is what he taught. And even I went to see this guy, and you know, I wanted to see what a real-life solipsist actually looks like, looked like, and how one would behave, and so on. And he behaved pretty much pretty normally. He he was quite cordial and friendly. I mean, given that I was a mere figment, I thought he treated me pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but then when I left, you know, we sort of chit-chatted for a few minutes, but we didn't have a whole lot to talk about. After a few minutes, I left. And one of his younger colleagues took me aside and said, you know, we take very good care of Dr. So-and-so because when he goes, we all go. <laughs> so, uh, so that's solipsism. But I'm not going to talk about solipsism. I want to talk about uh, something else. I want to, uh, uh, as uh, John said, I just, uh, this book of mine has just come out called Where the Conflict Really Lies, Science, Religion, and, uh, and Naturalism. And um, the theme of that book is that there is uh, superficial conflict, but deep concord between religion, and I'm thinking in particular of theistic religion, even more particularly of Christianity, between religion and science, superficial concord, uh, superficial conflict, but deep concord. But there is superficial concord and deep conflict between naturalism and science. Where I take naturalism, where I'm going to, where I define the term this way, naturalism is the idea that there isn't any such person as God or anything like God. So that's the that's the sort of uh, main theme of that book. And that's also the theme of uh, this talk, which covers uh, a bit of what that book says. There are several different alleged areas of alleged conflict between science and religion. Some people think, for example, that insofar as religions endorse miracles, Christ's rising from, from the dead, the parting of the Red Sea, uh, miraculous healings, and the like of that. Insofar as religions endorse miracles, uh, Christian religion anyway, and others as well, there will be conflict between science and religion. Uh, science proposes, propounds, discovers natural laws, so the thought goes a miracle would be contrary to, nat to natural laws, therefore there's conflict between science and religion. There is also conflict between um, Christian belief and various theories or themes of evolutionary psychology, which has become much more popular over the last uh, 10 or 15 years and bids fair to become the orthodoxy of, uh, of psychology. There is also a conflict or alleged conflict between uh, certain varieties of scripture scholarship, historical biblical criticism, we could call it, um, in some, in some, at least some versions of this, some theories propounded there um, are contrary to Christian belief, are incompatible with various parts of Christian belief. For example, Jesus' resurrection. Um, there is something you could call the scientific worldview, which may or may not have a lot to do with science. So in all these areas, there is real or alleged conflict. 
the area I want to talk about tonight is evolution, where there is a, at least alleged conflict, where in fact conflict has been alleged here at this conference. I want to talk about, uh, that's what I want to talk about. And if you look at the handout, and I hope everybody has a copy of the handout. Uh, by the way, can people hear me all right in the back? Yeah, okay. If you look at the handout then, I'll argue that uh, contemporary evolutionary theory, the scientific theory of evolution, is not incompatible with theistic belief. And I'll argue that the main anti-theistic arguments involving evolution together with other premises also fail. So uh, one position somebody might hold is that um, um, evolutionary theory just as it stands is incompatible with Christian belief. Another position would be, well, it's not incompatible with it just by itself, but if you add some very plausible premises, premises everybody agrees with, then those premises together with Christian belief and evolutionary and, and uh, evolution um, yield a contradiction. And then thirdly, I'll argue that um, naturalism, the thought that there is no such thing as the God of theistic religion or anything like God, is an essential element in the naturalistic worldview, which is a kind of quasi-religion in the sense that it plays some of the most important roles of a religion, answering such questions as uh, what is most real in our universe? Is there such a person as God? Is there a prospect for life after death? How are human beings related to the rest of the cosmos and to the rest of the animal world? And so on. Um, it plays some of the most important roles. And I I'll argue that naturalism, the thought that there's no such person as God or anything like God, is in fact incompatible with evolution. So there is a science slash religion, or perhaps we should say science slash quasi-religion conflict, all right. But it's a conflict between naturalism and science, not between theistic religion and science. So first then, section one. Um, evolution covers a variety of, the term evolution covers a variety of theses. Uh, the New Testament says love covers a multitude of sins. Evolution, that term covers a multitude not of sins, but of theses. First, there's the ancient earth thesis, according to which the earth is vastly older than people thought, say, 300 years ago. Maybe the earth is some four billion, four point some, something or other billion years old. Um, second, the thesis of descent with modification. The thought that all the variety in the living world has come to be by virtue of a process whereby um, offspring differ ordinarily in relatively small ways from their parents, and by virtue of this happening over and over and again over a very long period of time, you wind up with the enormous diversity that, in fact, you see. Uh, third, the thesis of the common ancestry thesis, according to which um, um, any two living things are, in fact, cousins in the sense that if you trace their ancestry back far enough, you will wind up with a common ancestor. So uh, you and the summer squash in your backyard are cousins, cousins under the rind or the skin, as the case may be. Uh, you and the poison ivy in your backyard are cousins. That's easier to imagine in the case of some people than others, but, <laughs> but it, uh, it's alleged to be so for everybody, all right? 
And then uh, fourth, Darwinism. Well, I'll just use the term Darwinism in this way. The claim that the principal mechanism driving this process of descent with modification is natural selection acting on or winnowing some uh, form of, of genetic variation. And a very common uh, suggestion nowadays is random genetic mutation. All right? Those are the theses. And now, my, when, I, when I ask the question whether um, evolutionary theory is incompatible with uh, theistic religion or more specifically Christianity, I'm thinking of uh, C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity. So this would be something like the, what, what would be the intersection of the great Christian creeds, um, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, uh, Luther's Shorter Catechism, Catholic Baltimore Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, um, Belgic Confession, the Westminster Confession, and so on, right? So what's more, more or less the intersection of these creeds would be what I'll speak of as mere Christianity. Um, and uh, the question is whether mere Christianity is incompatible with, with uh, evolutionary theory. Well, it doesn't look like the first three theses are incompatible with mere Christianity. The earth could be, I mean, there's nothing in the intersection of these creeds which says the earth isn't very old. And um, uh, God could have created things by way of, that involved uh, descent with modification. Seems not, no, nothing incompatible there. Similarly for the common ancestry thesis, could have happened that way too. Um, but the question would really arise with the fourth thesis, Darwinism. The idea that the process that the mechanism driving this whole process of descent with modification is uh, random genetic mutation, let's say, operating on or acting on or winnowing, um, uh, I'm sorry, natural selection operating on or winnowing natural selection. Now, um, there are lots of people who say there is a conflict here. Richard Dawkins certainly does. Daniel Dennett doesn't so much as say it as just assume it. Um, Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins are two of the dreaded four horsemen of atheism, the new atheists, Daniel Dennett, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. Not the four horsemen of the apocalypse, not even the four horsemen of Notre Dame, but the four horsemen of atheism, whose uh, stated aim is to trample Christianity and other religions into the dust. I must say, just by way of, uh, by way of uh, interjection, that these new atheists seem to me, as far as sort of intellectual acumen and intellectual quality goes, very considerably inferior to the old atheists, whoever exactly they are, but including, for example, Bertrand Russell and uh, John Mackey and uh, Charlie Dunbar Broad and the like. Um, they are much louder, but that's a different sort of thing altogether. Dawkins's book, um, The God Delusion, his, his book, the, the Blind Watchmaker, which I'll comment on a bit later here, I think is a really good book. I thoroughly disagree with it, but I think it's a really interesting, well-written, um, informative, very good book. His, The God Delusion, though, I think is much more like an ignorant screed than anything like a real contribution to, uh, to a subject, to a serious discussion. That just by way of interjection. 
Well, so now these people say that Darwinism, Darwinism is incompatible with theistic religion. And I want to ask, uh, well, why think so? Why do they think so? On the face of it, it looks as if God could have used a process like that too. God could have, as far as that goes, God could cause the right mutations to arise at the right time. He could also um, preserve various uh, populations from destruction by storms or things of that sort. On the face of it, it looks as if um, that could happen. God could do that. I don't say God did it that way. I don't say it's particularly likely that he did it that way. But there doesn't seem to be any impossibility in that. There's no contradiction, I would say, in the thought that God did things in that fashion. So why do these people, why do the, these people that I just mentioned, Dawkins, Dennett, et cetera, together also with Peter Atkins and many others, why do they say there is an incompatibility here? Well, it, it has to do with the fact that, um, according to Christian belief, God has created human beings in his image. Uh, more broadly, God presumably has some kind of purpose in the way the living world has actually turned out. But in particular, he uh, aimed to create creatures in his own image. And that means that if these creatures have come to be by way of, <coughs> by way of, uh, of a Darwinian process, that process would have to be, if we human beings have come, would have to have been guided. God would have to have intended that there be creatures of a certain sort. He would have to have planned that there be such creatures. And he would have to have modulated or guided, orchestrated or overseen this process in such a way as to see to it that he got the kinds of things, the kinds of creatures that he wanted. But right here is where, um, where there is a whole host of experts um, who say, well, it can't have been that way. What's, uh, what's incompatible with Christian belief is the thought that human beings together with the, less, the rest of the world have come to be by virtue of a Darwinian process, which process is unguided, which process is unguided. So there isn't any divine oversight, no divine orchestration, no divine guidance, all right? But as a matter of fact, there are a large number, uh, there's a whole choir of experts who say exactly that, that this process of evolution, Darwinian evolution, is unguided. So for example, George Gaylord Simpson says, man, and I add parenthetically, he means no doubt woman as well, is the result, I suppose you could say man was a result of a purposeless <laughs> process, but woman wasn't. As, as far as I know, that, uh, that, sort of, that sort of little cubbyhole in the hole, if you've made a, a grid here for all the positions you could hold, as far as I know, that one's still empty, right? <laughs> so, so if you're really interested in novelty and, and saying something new, being original, that's something to think about. <laughs> so he said, man is the result of a purposeless and natural process that did not have him in mind. Stephen Jay Gould says, if the evolutionary tape were to be rewound and then let go forward again, the chances are we'd get creatures of a very different sort. We wouldn't get anything like Homo sapiens. We might, he suggests, get nothing but bacteria. I mean, as things stand, there are bacteria sort of outweigh the rest of the living world uh, altogether, so I understand. I haven't conducted any research along those lines. <laughs> 
but I've heard at any rate that if you put all the bacteria on one side of a seesaw, a teeter-totter, and all other living creatures on the other side, the bacteria would win, all right? And so maybe uh, if the whole taper started rewound, which of course is not a logical possibility, and then let go forward again, uh, we'd get just bacteria. But in any event, he thinks it's unlikely that we'd get uh, anything much like homo sapiens, like us human beings. Here's how Richard Dawkins puts it in The Blind Watchmaker. He says, all appearances to the contrary, the only watchmaker in nature is the blind forces of physics, albeit deployed in a very special way. A true watchmaker has foresight. He designs his cogs and springs and plans their interconnections with a future purpose in his mind's eye. Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered and which we now know is the, whenever you run across this phrase, which we now know is so-and-so, it's time to worry just a bit. And which we now know is the explanation for the existence and apparently purposeful form, apparently purposeful form of all life. It has no purpose in mind. It has no mind and no mind's eye. It does not plan for the future. It has no vision, no foresight, no sight at all. If it can be said to play the role of watchmaker in nature, it is the blind watchmaker. And in fact, the subtitle of the book is Why the Evidence of Evolution Reveals a Universe Without Design. So the evidence of evolution reveals a universe without design. Well, here's a question. Why does, Dar or why does Dawkins think that natural selection is blind and unguided? Why does he think that? Why does he think that the evidence of evolution reveals a universe without design? Where does he get this idea? In this book, uh, he really does three things. First, he recounts some of the fascinating um, anatomical details of various forms of life, various living creatures. In the book, as I remember, he talks, for example, about bats and how bats can navigate at an extremely high rate of speed through a completely dark cave, avoiding the stalactites, which come down from the top, and the stalagmites, which come up from the bottom, or maybe it's the other way around, doesn't matter, avoiding all those stalags anyway at an enormously high rate of speed, completely dark cave, uh, without so much as brushing against any of them by virtue of their, uh, their sonar. And he describes this in very interesting um, and informative detail. Then secondly, um, he tries to refute arguments for the conclusion that blind, unguided evolution could not have produced certain of the wonders of the living world um, going all the way back to his contemporary, St. George Mavart and others, there were people who would point to various organs or systems, organic systems, and say, well, now this could not, this certainly could not have gotten, this could not have developed just by blind, unguided natural selection. That couldn't happen. Um, they would talk, in St. George Mavart talked in particular about the eye and uh, what he had to say about it really <coughs> amounted substantially to the claim that the eye is, uh, is irreducibly complex. 
uh, to use a contemporary term. But in any event, Dawkins tries to refute these arguments. Sometimes he's uh, more successful than others. And then third, he makes suggestions as to how these and other organic systems could in fact have developed by unguided evolution. That's what he does substantially in the book, all right? But now the subtitle of his book is How the Evidence of Evolution Reveals a Universe Without Design. What's the argument for that in the book? Because apparently this is a main point, a main point, maybe the main point of the book. As far as I can see, the form of his main argument there is, as you see it on the sheet, one, we know of no irrefutable objections to its being biologically possible that all of life has come to be by way of unguided Darwinian processes. That would be the premise. Another way to put that would be, nobody has proved it impossible that all of life has come to be by way of unguided Darwinian processes. And the conclusion is, therefore, all of life has come to be by way of unguided Darwinian processes. As far as I can make out, that's the argument. Now, uh, philosophers sometimes propose uncogent arguments. And I must confess to my shame, I've done the same thing myself. But hardly any philosopher I've ever run across has produced an argument as whoppingly uncogent as this one is. <laughs> I mean, uh, imagine I come home and tell my wife, Kathy, President Obama has just decided that there's to be a new medal for philosophy, and I'm to be the first recipient. And she says, uh, well, that's interesting. Um, what makes you think that? And I say, nobody's proved it impossible. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what would happen. I'm, I think I might get packed off to some facility if I, <laughs> if I propose an argument of that form. But that's the form of this argument. Now you might think, well, that can't be what he really means. And various people have suggested to me, no, that can't be what he really means. Um, and then I ask him, well, what might he mean? But so far, nobody's come up with a decent suggestion. As far as I can make out, this is what he means. And as I say, it is a uh, real whopper. So I think we can, so um, my thought is that Dark Dawkins utterly fails to show that the facts of evolution reveal a universe without design. He doesn't come anywhere near showing that. He just produces this uh, fantastic argument. But still the fact that he and other experts assert his subtitle loudly and slowly as it were, I mean the subtitle, How the Evidence of Evolution Reveals the Universe Without Design. He and others assert this um, loudly and slowly in the way in which you talk maybe to an inattentive eight-year-old whom you want to do something, you know, loudly and slowly. Um, the fact that they do this can be expected to convince many that the biological theory of evolution is in fact incompatible with the theistic Christian belief that the living world has been designed. Okay, well now um, to uh, approach a theme that showed up in this conference yesterday. What about the fact that, the, that these random genetic mutations are said to be random? Could they be both random and also caused by God 
um, orchestrated, their appearance orchestrated by God and the like. Um, well, I think the first thing to see is that the term random has many different uses. I mean, there's a choosing a card at random, there's random variation, there's randomness comes in a wide, I mean, the term is used in a wide variety of ways. There is a particular way, though, that, um, so, so I'm told, it's used in biology. And, uh, and here I'm, I want to call as my witnesses two eminent people who think about this thing um, uh, as a kind of professional level. Ernst Meyer, the first, the uh, dean of 20th century evolutionary biology, says, when it's said that mutation or variation is random, the statement means simply that there is no correlation between the production of new genotypes and the adaptational needs of an organism in a given environment, all right? I think Elliot Sober, who is uh, one of the most, or maybe the most distinguished contemporary philosopher of biology and not a theist, I think he puts the same thing perhaps more specifically. He says, to say that these, gen uh, these genetic mutations are random is to say there is no physical mechanism either inside organisms or outside of them that detects which mutations would be beneficial and causes those mutations to occur. There's no mechanism, no physical mechanism inside of organisms or out of them that detects which mutations would be beneficial for a given organism and then causes those mutations to occur. So says Elliot Sober. Ernst Meyer says substantially the same thing. But it's pretty clear that um, these mutations could be random in that sense, even if God causes them. Even if God causes them, there's no physical organism inside the, the organism, no physical mechanism inside the organism or outside of the organism, which detects which ones would be good ones to have and then causes those to occur. So if this is in fact how the term random is to be understood in the phrase random genetic mutation, in a statement of Darwinian evolution, a scientific theory of evolution, uh, then it looks as if it's perfectly compatible to say it's perfectly possible to believe, perfectly sensible to believe both that God has orchestrated this whole process and that the process is one involving random gene genetic mutation. Now, uh, Mike Behe yesterday quoted some people to the contrary but I'm not sure what he quoted were people to the contrary exactly. It's one thing to say that you think this process is in fact unguided. It's another thing to uh, say that the very meaning of the term random, random is such that the process, it follows from the very meaning of that term that the process is unguided. And um, the people he mentioned, those Nobel laureates for example, and uh, the National Association of Biology teachers, what they said didn't, didn't uh, was ambiguous as between whether they're saying, well, here's what the very term means on the one hand, and on the other hand, here's how we think this, what this process is like, right? I mean, there's an important distinction there. And it's not clear from the wording they used which of these two things they proposed. Um, uh, if, in fact, the term random in this context meant something, that was incompatible with uh, 
with guidance, well, then it would follow that uh, the scientific theory as such is incompatible with Christian belief. But it's not at all obvious that that's what the term does mean in this context. So I say the claim that evolution demonstrates that human beings and other living creatures have not, contrary to appearances, been designed, that's not a part of or a consequence of the scientific theory of evolution just as such. It's a metaphysical or theological add-on. It's something that various people um, add on to the, onto the theory because they, they, they think that's the, way that, that's, that's the way this process is. They think it's unguided. It's as if, um, as if naturalists or atheists or people of that general sort uh, want to co-opt the theory of evolution, the scientific theory of evolution, into a service in a, in, a, in a kind of argument for their view of the world. All right? Okay, um, that's what I say so far. Um, but I must admit, it's not totally clear, whether, it's not totally clear what the theory is. Um, it's not as if it's chiseled into the wall of the, some building in Washington, D.C. It's not as if there is a canonical uh, formulation of the theory um, with, with an original set of premises and various deductions from it. That's not how it is. You, the theory just shows up in various people's publications and books. And um, maybe different people do use this term random in different ways. People who write in this area, including, of course, biologists, um, there does seem to be some confusion about just how the theory of evolution is to be understood. So, for example, Pope John Paul II seemed favorably disposed towards evolution and said it was more than a mere theory. Uh, Cardinal Schoenborn, on the other hand, said evolution in the sense of common ancestry might be true, but evolution in the neo-Darwinian sense an unguided, unplanned process of random variation and natural selection is not. So uh, I think we can understand them in such a way that they are on the same page, but there is confusion here. And as, most po as several polls reveal, most Americans have grave doubts about the truth of evolution. The poll, you get different numbers on different occasions, but certainly in all of them, a majority of Americans have grave doubts about the truth of evolution, and very many Christians are concerned about the teaching of evolution in the schools and want to add something as a corrective, perhaps um, intelligent design, or they want it taught as a mere theory rather than as a sober truth or a sober fact, or they uh, want it taught along with objections to it, or they want it taught in the context of a course on critical thinking, that sort of thing, all right? Um, and you might ask, why is that? Why is it that uh, most Americans have grave truths about the doubt, uh, grave doubts about the truth of evolution? Well, one reason is this, just that we're regularly told by the experts, Dawkins, Dennett, Ayala, Gould, and others, that current scientific evolutionary theory asserts or implies that the living world is not, in fact, designed, and that the evolutionary process is unguided. For example, uh, Michael Behe mentioned yesterday the National Association of Biology Teachers until 10 years or so ago. They officially described evolution on their website as an unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process. 
unsupervised, impersonal. They did change this later on. Uh, as a matter of fact, I and another guy wrote them a letter and said it looked like they were drifting into theology with this unsupervised, impersonal part of the formulation. And they did change it, maybe as Michael Behe said yesterday, it was a matter of public relations. Or maybe they saw that, that uh, it wasn't really part of a scientific theory as such to assert that it's unsupervised by anybody, not even by God. But in any event, um, we are regularly told this. I recently saw a list of um, university level, college university level textbooks um, in biology where what they said about evolution very clearly implied that evolution is an unguided process, unsupervised, all right? So if we're regularly told by the experts that in fact the theory is a theory of unguided evolution, then it's no wonder that many Christians believe this. Further, if Christians do believe this, it's no wonder that they don't want it taught as the sober truth in the public schools. Thus understood, it is incompatible with Christian as well as Jewish and Muslim belief. I say there are very clearly uh, questions of justice here. Would it be just fair to teach in public schools positions that go contrary to the religious beliefs of most of those people who pay for those schools? Well, this is a whole nother and a very, uh, what should we say, contentious area uh, that I won't go into now, but um, I do think there is a real question of justice there. Um, how long is this session supposed to last? Okay. 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 Well, I'll skip the second part here and go directly up to page four, the third part. <coughs> so far I've argued that <coughs> there isn't conflict between the scientific theory of evolution on the one hand and mere Christianity, Christian belief on the other hand. Now I want to go, you might say, from defense to offense. Um, in the NFL you can't play both defense and offense but I'm not in the NFL, so I can't. So um, in the third part, uh, it, I call it naturalism versus evolution. I want to argue that um, naturalism and evolution don't fit together well at all. Many people seem to think of evolution as a kind of temple, uh, sorry, pillar in the temple of naturalism. I want to argue that in fact, um, they don't fit together well at all and that, as a matter of fact, you can't sensibly accept both naturalism and evolution. So they conflict in the sense that you can't sensibly accept them both. I don't say that they can't both be true. I don't think they can both be true, but I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you can't sensibly accept them both. There are many propositions you can't sensibly accept, even though the propositions are possibly true. For example, I can't sensibly believe that nobody ever believes anything. It's possible that, uh, it's logically possible that nobody believes anything, but I can't sensibly claim that I believe that nobody believes anything, all right? Um, and I'll use the letter N to abbreviate naturalism, the thought that there's no such person as God or anything like God. I'll use the letter E to abbreviate 
the thought that we human beings have come to be by virtue of the processes proposed in current evolutionary theory. So we've come to be by way of evolution. I'll use the letter E for that. And I'll use the uh, letter R for the proposition that our cognitive faculties are reliable. And here, when I speak of cognitive faculties, I'm thinking of memory, for example, whereby I know something about the past, uh, where I was yesterday, where I was day before that, um, where I spent the night last night. So memory, uh, perception, whereby we know something about our environment, um, our near environment. For example, by perception, I know that there are lots of people here and lots of chairs, a microphone in front of me. We can also learn things about our far environment too, of course. We can uh, perceive the sun and, uh, and stars, which may be uh, many, 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 many billions of uh, years away from, light years away from us. So there's per memory perception. There is also what we co could call uh, a priori or uh, logical intuition, whereby we can learn, we can know such things, such simple things as that two plus one equals three, or if all men are mortal and Socrates is a man, then Socrates is mortal and whereby we can also see logical relations between various propositions. Uh, there's also induction, whereby we can learn something about the future from how the past has been. Uh, the philosopher Thomas Reed spoke of sympathy, whereby we can know what other people are thinking or feeling very often just by taking a look at them. I can look at my wife and think, uh-oh, uh I must have done something annoying again. <laughs> Um, just by the expression on her face. Uh, there are these, these cognitive faculties. Now we ordinarily just assume that they are reliable in the sense that they produce in us a preponderance of true beliefs. Not all true beliefs, of course, we often make mistakes, but uh, a preponderance of true beliefs. More true beliefs than false, certainly. Maybe has to be more than, say, uh, three out of four true beliefs in order for the faculty in question to be reliable. Hard to say exactly what this proportion, what this requirement is for reliability, but something like that. And we all take it for granted that our faculties are reliable. They are uh, reliable in the sort of central area of their application. They're more reliable than at the fringes. So if I'm in the mountains, um, I might look a long ways, look off in the distance, and see this uh, white, whatever, blur, I might think that's a mountain goat, and um, I might be right, but I might also be wrong. On the other hand, if I uh, hike right up to this mountain goat, which is, we'll say, 400 yards away, take a good careful look at it, well, then I'll know for sure that it's a mountain goat. For sure, relatively speaking, it's conceivable that somebody uh, dressed up a sheep or something, um, or made some really elaborate <coughs> uh, mountain goat robot to deceive me, but setting that sort of thing aside, um, that kind of, of um, use of our faculties is, we think, very reliable. Okay, now what I wanna argue is the following. I wanna argue, here are the premises there. First, that the probability of R on N and E is low. And here you see that P of R slash N and E, that's just a notation for conditional probability, which is an idea we've all got, even if we don't have the term, and use all the time. So for example, the uh, 
the conditional probability is the probability of one proposition given the truth of some other proposition, given that, or on the, on the supposition that this other proposition is true. So for example, you might ask, um, what's the probability that Mr. A will live to be 80 now that Mr. A is, uh, given that Mr. A is now 35, um, doesn't watch his diet at all, never gets any exercise, and has grandparents, all of whom died by the age of 50. Fairly low probability. You might contrast that with the probability that Mr. B will live to be 80, given that Mr. B is now 70, watches his diet like a hawk, runs 11 miles every day, and has grandparents, all of whom live to be over 100, a much higher probability, right? So the probability of one proposition given that on the assumption of the truth of some other proposition. Uh, we might ask, what's the probability that uh, that uh, Jock is a Mormon, given that Jock lives in Glasgow, Scotland. Well, not very high. I'm not sure what the proportions of proportion of Mormons there is, but not very high. And we could contrast that with the probability that uh, Brigham is a Mormon, <laughs> given that Brigham lives in Salt Lake City. That will be, a, again, a much higher probability, all right? So the first premise of the argument is that the probability of R given N and E is low. And I'll argue for that below. The second premise is that if you accept N and E, and you also see that one is true, then you have a defeater for R, where a defeater for one of your beliefs is a new belief you acquire such that as long as you accept this new belief, you can no longer rationally accept the, the other belief the defeated belief. So for example, um, I'm looking in a field and I see what I take to be a sheep. I form the belief, there's a sheep in this field. And then you come along, you who I know to be the owner of the field and whom I take to be an honest man, and you tell me that there are, you never keep sheep in the field, but you do have a dog that from this distance looks like a sheep. Well, then I've got a defeater for my original belief that there's a sheep there, all right? I might um, imagine I in, am in Aberdeen, Scotland. I've got the guidebook and I read that uh, the chapel of King's, King's College there, or that uh, I read that the university was established in 1595. So I formed the belief, well, it was established in 1595. Then I go to a cocktail party and I, um, I meet the author of the guidebook who's got a peculiarly hangdog look about him, and he shamefacedly admits that he got that all wrong. It wasn't 1595, it was 1495. Well, then I'll have a defeater for my original belief that it was 1595. As you can imagine, defeaters can also themselves have defeaters. You can have defeater defeaters, right? Uh, as a matter of fact, you could have defeater defeater defeaters. <laughs> and so on. I mean, after a few repetitions, it gets sort of boring, but, uh, but you can. So for example, in the first case, the uh, case of the sheep, I got this defeater for my belief that there was a sheep there, and you're telling me that you don't keep sheep there. But then I run into your wife, who says that, uh, shakes her head sadly and says, my poor husband, he's developed this thing about sheep, and he always claims there aren't any sheep in that field, even when there are. 
I don't know what's going to become of him. Well, then I've got a defeater, defeater, and I'll be back to my original belief that there was a sheep in the field. All right? Okay. So the first premise, then, is that the probability of R on enemy is low. The second is one who accepts enemy and also sees that one is true has a defeater for R. The third is this defeater can't, in turn, be defeated, where R is the proposition that our cognitive faculties are reliable. Um, and furthermore, one, the next premise, one who has a defeater for R, for the proposition that our faculties are reliable, has a defeater for any belief she takes to be produced by her faculties. But of course, that's all of her beliefs. All of our beliefs are produced by our cognitive faculties, including enony itself. That's one of her beliefs. So enony is self-defeating. It provides a defeater for itself. It uh, shoots itself in the foot. It's uh, self-referentially incoherent, a lot of different words we could use here, and can't rationally be accepted. Okay. Now the premise of this argument, so the conclusion then is that you can't sensibly believe naturalism and evolution. The premise of this argument that needs the most support, in my opinion, is the first premise that the probability that our faculties are reliable given in an E is low. And um, I want to argue for that premise now. First, I want to take naturalism to include materialism about human beings. Materialism about human beings. Not materialism as the thought that everything in the whole universe is material, but rather just that human beings are. So there are people who believe in God but also are materialists about human beings. My colleague Peter Van Inwagen at the University of Notre Dame, for example, is such a person. A materialist about human beings thinks that human beings are material objects. Maybe what I am is my body, or maybe I'm identical with my brain, or maybe the left half of it, or maybe some part of the left half of it, something like that. What I am is a material object. I don't have any immaterial soul as a part. I am not, as Descartes and Augustine thought, myself an immaterial substance intimately joined to or related to a material object, namely my body. No, I just am my body or some part of it or some material object, all right? That's what the materialist thinks. And I'm taking naturalism to include materialism on the grounds that most naturalists, in fact, all the ones I know, are materialists about human beings. And from the point of view of materialism, a belief, if you ask what is a belief then from this point of view, what is, it, what is a belief? I've got the belief that all men are mortal, for example. What is that thing, that belief? What kind of an animal is it? According to materialism, about the only real possibility is that a belief will have to be an event or a structure in my nervous system maybe a bunch of neurons collected together and firing away and sending signals out via, uh, via nerves to other such, uh, to other such uh, events or collections of neurons or maybe to, um, maybe to muscles or to glands and maybe with input from sense organs and the like of that. That's the sort of thing that a belief will have to be from this perspective. And now instead of thinking about ourselves, Let's think about a population of creatures on some distant planet, maybe in some other universe. And let's suppose that enony holds for them. So 
Um, they, ca they came to be by way of naturalism, they came to be by way of, of evolution, and it'd be unguided evolution. We're supposing that naturalism and evolution holds for them. What we can assume about these creatures is that their behavior is adaptive, that it's conducive to survival and reproduction. Since they have survived, their behavior is presumably conducive to survival and reproduction. reproduction. So their behavior is adaptive. This behavior is caused by processes in their brains. Um, so if you ask, oh, why does my arm go up? Then from this materialist point of view, at least, the answer will be in terms of signals sent from my brain uh, along uh, effector nerves to the relevant muscles, which can, are caused to contract, and up goes my arm, all right? This behavior is caused by processes in their brains, which we can speak of as the underlying neurology. This neurology, furthermore, this neurology, therefore, is also adaptive. Since it causes adaptive behavior, we can say of it that it, too, is adaptive. This neurology, furthermore, also causes their beliefs. The neurology also causes their beliefs. Um, but so far as that adaptive behavior is concerned, it doesn't matter whether those beliefs are true or whether they're false. If they're true, that's fine. If they're false, that's also fine. Either way, as long as the underlying neurology causes adaptive behavior, um, you'll, have, you'll have fitness, and, um, and it won't matter one way or the other whether these beliefs are true. Another way to think about it, a belief will, it's, as I said, be a neural structure of some kind, and it will have two kinds of properties. Neurophysiological properties, properties that detail um, how many neurons there are in that particular structure, how they're connected with each other, what the rate of fire in the various parts of the structure is, how the rate of fire in one part changes in response to a change in rate of fire in another part, and so on. Neurophysiological properties, I'll call them NP properties. But if it's really a belief, it will also have a property of quite a different sort. It will have a content. This, this neural structure will have to have a content. It'll have to be the belief that P, for some proposition P, maybe the proposition that, there, that where the uh, Metropolitan Opera House in New York City now stands, there once was a tavern. Maybe that's the, con uh, the content of, the, of a, a particular neuronal structure of that sort. It'll have to have a content. Now, when you ask how are these two related, the, the uh, NP properties and the content properties, according to materialists, the NP properties determine the content properties. The content properties, like other mental properties, as they say, supervene on the neurophysiological properties. They are determined by them. In the at the same time, the NP properties, it's by virtue of those NP properties that the belief causes whatever it does. But it's not by virtue of its content that it causes what it does cause. If it had the same NP properties, this belief, but a different content, it would still cause the very same effects with respect to behavior, all right? Okay, so what I say then is um, this neurology causes their beliefs, but as far as that adaptive behavior is concerned, it doesn't matter whether those beliefs are true or false. If true, that's fine. If false, that's also fine, so long as the neurology causes the right behavior. 
It doesn't matter, therefore, whether their beliefs are mostly true or mostly false or 50-50. Take any particular belief. What's the probability that that belief is true? Well, it could be true, it could be false, uh, given what we know, namely that these creatures um, were produced by evolution, by unguided evolution. Could be true, could be, could be false. I'd say it's about a half. But then the probability of R for these creatures is really low. If you have 100 independent beliefs and the probability with respect to each one that it's true is a half, then the probability that say three quarters of, the, of your beliefs are true will be uh, something like one out of a million. It'll be very low, all right? So the probability of R for these creatures is really low. The probability of R on N and E with respect to them, so I say, is low. But of course, the same will go for us. So um, that premise one, so I say, is true. And uh, since it's the premise that needs the most argument, and I've now given the argument, I say the conclusion is true. Thank you. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.